0: Hey there! Before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is, black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you, but if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, let's go!
1: I was talking with a friend yesterday or the day before, and I was saying how it's really important for me in my conversations about like religion, Christianity, faith, commentary, leaving the faith, all of that, that palm colored people are not centered in those conversations. In fact, one of the reasons why I took such a prolonged (laughs) break, if you will, is that, you know, I just saw so many creators, uh, black creators, who were talking about leaving the faith and, and, and similar things. And everything seemed to revolve around what white people are doing, what they mean, how they're acting, what they're saying, all of these things. And no disrespect, but it just really didn't sit well with my my spirit, as the folks say. And that's because for me, what I've learned is that it's very easy to have the intention to not center something or someone But then you're talking so much about what they're doing, what they mean, what they think, in situations where it's not even necessary or even useful, that you're still centering them. And for me, I want to be more generative. What are Black folks like me? or others doing in terms of processing their past, particularly from Christianity. How are they navigating their trauma? How are they building their lives now? What are they doing to make meaning? How are they making sense of their life in this moment? And for me personally, that just doesn't leave much room to discuss what palm colored folks are doing that often i would like to see more creators find ways to center your own experiences your folks own experiences our folks experiences and less talking about them we can talk about them when it makes sense we can talk about them when it's instructive when it's educational but just because nah, nah.
2: Free thought, stories, gender, yes. politics, blackness, education, doubt, critique, science, achievement, engineering, Africa, America, <laughs> and more. America.
0: Welcome back to where we're headed. It has been a while since our last episode. I know it's been too long, but we haven't forgotten about you and all the stories that we have to tell, they just keep adding up. Now, I told you the last time there's a lot going on behind the scenes, but the stories are still here and they're still coming. Now, if you're just joining us at this podcast and where we're headed, we are engaged in narrative. We're not just here to complain or to sort of make fun of or anything like that, but we're really engaged in a project of narrative inquiry, specifically on religious descent in the African diaspora. We cover Angles and faith traditions, descent and Black beauty and power, between the first and second season, there's something there for everybody. We're telling stories about Black people, that is Africa, and everywhere people of African descent can be found around the globe. Through the lens of Black EGAT, atheists, secular humanists, skeptics, and non-believers. And maybe you've heard something about those folks.
1: Nigerian atheist activist Mubarak Bala has been sentenced to 24 years after pleading guilty to 18 charges in a blasphemy case. A canal-based judge, Faru Lawan, gave the ruling on Tuesday. The atheist activist had been in detention since April 2020. Just
2: reading all these posts, it makes me unhappy,
1: it me. Millions of threats, they are going to kill him, they are going to chop his body, they are going to cut off his head. I told him, come to Abuja immediately. You
2: has been convicted, convicted and sentenced to 24 years imprisonment.
1: 37 year old Bala was accused of writing Facebook posts criticizing Islam and its prophets, which the court said were capable of breaching public peace in Nigeria's conservative Muslim north. To him. We could not talk
2: to him, we could not send people to him. In fact, initially it was difficult to even get them to admit that they had him.
1: What followed is a landmark case. Advocacy is
2: always freedom of religion, social justice, and also freedom of speech.
1: Mubarak Bala is an outspoken atheist from Kano, a conservative state in the northern
2: part of Nigeria. i critic He's of religion. religion. People take it as an insult. But I don't see it as an insult or blasphemy. If they feel hurt that this is what I'm doing, they can actually just unfriend me. They don't need to follow it. Mubarak's forthright criticism of Islam and religion in general caused outrage among conservatives in the country, and after Muslim lawyers in Kano complained to the police, he was arrested in April 2020.
0: Since the beginning of this season two in the podcast, I really wanted to go abroad and not just simply highlight the hills and valleys of the Black religious experience in the United States but also to really expand and expound on how religiosity and colonialism go hand in hand around the world. In other words, this goes beyond Christianity. It goes beyond just what's happening in church. Dissent is a phenomena that can be studied in nearly everything and everywhere. That's why today we're sharing a very special interview with a friend of mine from West Africa and he's a former imam of the Muslim faith. He's his own man, but he's also doing some really important work through an organization called the Clergy Project, which was established a few years ago to give former pastors, ministers, imams, and even rabbis a place of transition as they deconstruct their faith and try to make sense out of the next chapters in their life. It's really an organization for people who have really transitioned out of their own belief and need a new start. Hi, this is Frederick from Pasadena, and you are listening to the WWH podcast. I'm Rogier, and you're listening to Where We're Headed. I met this gentleman here in Washington, D.C. in 2021 during the pandemic at a conference and he is no longer living in West Africa, he's in Alaska. But I had to catch up with him one more time after this conference, just for a one-on-one interview, to get to know him and his story a little better. Here's my interview with Mohamed Cisse. i wanted to uh, just welcome you to our conversation and everybody who's listening um this is mohammed Cisse. you got it right if you see something say something <laughs> i'm talking with you uh from the east coast but you are the east coast of the states in the united states and you are in alaska tell so, me how you got there
2: i'm in alaska precisely in fairbanks it's a midnight sun city it's also called the Golden Heart City. That's where we get to celebrate the sources. Like uh, in June 21st, for instance, it will be uh, 24 hours daylight. I previously lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and uh, I moved to Alaska in 2016 for two reasons. One, I was tired of the traffic jam on the I-95 and the 76. Two it was too much hassles you spend too much time and going to work too much time coming back to home so it feels like you just constantly surviving and you're not living. so i decided like the united state is a 50 state 50 50 and over 52 state country me as an immigrant if i limit myself with only philadelphia and pennsylvania that means i'm not taking advantage of the united states so i decided to explore somewhere else and i wanted to go to a non-driving distance, like where will the typical immigrant from Ivory Coast will not go. That's how extreme sometimes I go. Where will a typical man of my kind will never go? And what I found was Alaska. Like, you know what, I'm going to Alaska. And uh, that's it, I packed up to come
0: here. I found that I've traveled quite a bit over the years. and. Um, one of the things that uh, is amazing is that you find Africans wherever you go. There's always That's right. an African somewhere. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You yeah. mentioned being an immigrant from the Ivory Coast, and uh, I know where that is, and I know a lot of people do, but can you just talk about your your um, home
2: home? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Tumodi in you know, a farm, cocoa bean farm, and a uh, corn farm, cotton farm. Uh, my grandfather was a farmer, so we did all of it. I moved to the United States in 2010, but I had a chance to visit the United States in 2007 first through a U.S. Uh, embassy leadership program called International Visitor Leadership Program. So basically what that is, is you as an American and all of the Americans listening to you, part of your tax paid money is being used by the U.S. State Department at the Bureau of Education and Cultural Exchange to foster American diplomacy overseas. So U.S. embassies working around the world, work directly with communities such as the one I was born in. They uh, help us learn how to do better farming with uh, Peace Corps volunteers. Um, They help us uh, participate in our cultural events. They have libraries that give us access to books that we don't have access to. So that's how I got to discover the US embassy. And in uh, 2005, I was one of the community development officers working on the HIV aid project. I was trained to uh, help uh, uh, people living with HIV um, to help them take their medication and stuff like that. So I began to see that I have a really great impact on the community because I was connecting to those people easy. And as you may think of it, back from the 1990s to the 2000s, HIV was like a big, big issue. Some people died more from stigma and discrimination than from the disease itself. So in order to slow and to prevent those stigmatization and discrimination, the PePFAR project throughout those countries, especially in Ivory Coast, had a youth group like myself trained in terms of conveying the message in a local language, to let people know that HIV is a disease, it doesn't get you because you're a bad person. And that brings me to say that had it not be for the US embassy and this type of project, people were dying more from religion discrimination than from the HIV actually discrimination. Because if you think about it, right, the population doesn't have that much of scientific knowledge to know what this HIV is, however, their concept of HIV stemmed from the fact that, oh, it's a disease you get from bad sexual behavior. And who tell them that the sexual behavior is bad? Religion. So it's all about God's, you know, is cursing you. That's a curse from God. It's a curse from God. So religion is actually what was actually more, killing people more than the disease itself. And I say that without any reserve because a sociological study will prove you that had it not be for the religious condemnation of a sexual act and the religious prescription of how sex should be, people will be much more educated in terms of how they will be partnered to one another. So um, my job was to work with other young people to convey the message of the virus in the local language, to tell people, no, someone with HIV, you can eat with that person and you're not gonna get sick. The person is now morally bankrupt. It's still your sister, it's still your aunt, it's still your brother, it's still your mom, it's still your father. HIV can get to someone without even having sex, uh, you know, needles and stuff like that. So we help with the messaging and stuff like that. The U.S. Embassy uh, throughout the, those different programs, they uh, you know, identified me as one of the one of the youth having high impact on the community. So they gave me that invitation to come visit the United States, which I would never have been able to offer had it not be for your tax paid money that your government is wisely spending through the uh, State Department. So I'm grateful to the American society. And um, that's how I came to U.S. for the first time in 2007. And in 2010... When i wanted to go to school i decided to uh, go
0: to school in philadelphia
2: and i settled in the united states
0: well we're grateful that you that you were part of that program because you were doing good work good yeah. works as they say and much needed work especially as it relates to to something that is tied to our our notions of relationship with one another yeah. um sexual relationship interpersonal yeah. community and so forth can I just ask, in, as, as a landscape question, we're talking about a religious landscape that is predominantly Muslim, predominantly Christian, predominantly, uh, you know, whatever the local sort of indigenous religion. What, what's the landscape of, of faith and practice from the standpoint of who you are working with? The,
2: the community I grew up, I was born and grew up with, was split equally. You have, Ivory Coast is like a 32% Muslim Thirty-three or thirty-four percent Christian, and the rest is, you know, others. Animist and um, traditional ancestry religions practices have been brushed aside completely and severely. So bad that you barely can see it, right? So what you, what we're dealing with is mainly Islam and Christianity. So you can have different varieties of Islam and different varieties of Christianity, but it's those two that actually have the same messaging, except they don't like one another. That's it. But they have the same blasphemy type, same don't do this, do that, don't do this, do that. But it's just uh, those two. So I grew up in a community where I had both. And both, both, uh, both of them had a, you know, negative environment for people living with HIV. Both consider HIV as a curse from God.
0: Yeah. And how is the or what's the the landscape of humanist or non-religious people? You, how did you and or other people communicate to people who are religious? You know, like there's a humanist element of of your work and you know did you have to hide that in your work as a as a hiv uh, communicator what's what's that whole landscape like
2: back home i was still very religious i didn't know too much about humanism and i didn't even believe in humanism per se when i was back home because i uh, i wasn't dumb i didn't have that much of education i heard Rarely a sprinkle of words such as being atheist or Scientologist. I saw people entertaining those subjects in a, you know, educated academic environment. But the one thing I did have was a very critical thinking process when it comes to life. And I think that was, that's the reason why I was able to live in harmony with a non-Muslim, even though I was a Muslim. So that, that came from my refusal to accept the word destiny. Like, oh, this is your destiny. Like, oh, you were born for this. Like, oh, you were born for that. Like, oh, whatever God has decided for you, no one can change it. These are the type of things I, I would just rebel against. Like, no. No. It shouldn't be the case. And I remember I even gave an interview on a, on a Catholic radio channel about the subject of destiny, where I was saying that people have a misconception of destiny because to me, destiny is the laws of nature. Like you're born, you eat, you breathe, you get sick, and you die. That is destiny. Like you have ears, you can listen, But whether you like it or not, you're going to hear. You don't have control over that. If I'm cooking next to you, whether you like it or not, you're going to smell unless you have a problem with your nostrils. So you can't control that. I think that's, that's destiny. But if I'm sick, going to the hospital, getting medication, that can be a destiny because if you go early to the hospital your chances of survival increases so your destiny is not like a oh you were meant to die this specific day no you will die this specific day if you don't do this, this, this. but the reverse is no matter what you do you're gonna die this day i said no it couldn't be the case so some would just like a and they used to tag me with words like a Oh, he's a philosopher. And at the time, I didn't even know what a philosopher is. It's like a, oh, so actually, that's a beautiful title. It's meaning free thinker, it means someone who thinks deep. So I remember they were giving me like a nickname of, oh, the philosopher, the philosopher, the philosopher. This guy is crazy. He's just like a crazy in his head because I'm thinking out of the box.
0: We'll be right back after this break. Where we're headed is going through some transitions as we change affiliations behind the scenes. We're gonna keep it coming. But for the moment, if you wanna support the show, you can support us by following us on Twitter at WWH Podcasting, and or you can support me on social media at Rogier1 on Twitter and Instagram and Patreon. That's at Rogier1, R-O-G-I-E-R-S and the number one. Whatever way you do, we'll be grateful. And we're back. Let's jump right back into my interview with Mohammed Cisse. If you're just joining us, Mohammed is a former imam that's basically a pastor in Islam. And he's from West Africa. And boy, does he have a lot to talk about. Here's Muhammad once again in his own words. Wow. You know, I met you already, so <laughs> I kind of have a sneak peek. But uh, I know that you work now with an organization of ex clergymen I want to ask you a little bit about your your time as an imam. I understand that, that you were an imam. Can you tell me a little bit about your indoctrination and then what were the things that that sort of kicked off your your journey out of faith? Oh, uh,
2: like I said, I was born. My, my dad was imam. My grandfather was imam. My mom's brother was imam. Everybody was imam around me. So I was trained to be imam myself. So I, um, you know, grew up in that. But I think the abuses and the cruelty is what begin to shift my head a little bit. My mom, for instance, was married when she was 13 years old. She got me when she was 14 years old. She was divorced by my dad when she was 16, which means I was two years old. And when I say divorce, I'm not saying going to court to get divorced. No, she was just abandoned. And she has nothing to say, despite his position of being Imam. But that's not even the worst. The worst is my dad's first child was older than my mother. This is like a, I have a 17-year-old daughter right now. If I went my way and married a 14-year-old child. But you see, only religions will allow that to happen. What would I would want that girl to do? Like, how would my, my daughter even look at it? But you see, from a religious perspective, my daughter has to respect that and she has nothing to say. So these were things that I was able to pay attention to, but they're not things that the average kid of my age or my society would even be able to look at. It's just what we have. It's who we are. It's what is it. It is. You just take it like that. And then you live with it. It's like the norm, right? So people like me are like anomalies. I'm like a cancer in my family, if you want to. Like a a foreign body or a body that was just messed up with a little stupid thinking process of logic. So... um, these are things that kept me sometimes awake at night. And um, the tipping point came from when I had a chance to go to school in the United States. I remember when I was seven years old, my mom had a, a mental breakdown and she was hallucinative, like a, like a schizophrenia type like a challenge. But I remember, again, as young as I was, that whenever she's undergoing her crisis, when I'm around, she comes down. But my grandpa and my uncles, they will take me away. So her crisis escalate. They will tie her down and beat her. Yes. Because she is possessed by the devil. That is another round of religious cruelty. That is beyond my understanding. Those people were not capable of helping her calm down. But for them, they are just ah, casting the devil out of her. So there were Quranic verses that we used to make her medications, holy waters and stuff like that. They used to treat her with. So if she's in a crisis, someone would say, oh, no, when her crisis come around, bring her son around, she can, you know, calm down. No, 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 no. They will literally take me away and then isolate her and then tie her down and stuff like that. So these are things that my mind begin to just, you know, reject. I didn't like my mom being treated this way. But as a kid, I don't have much to say. I don't know what to do. It's too complex for my childish brain. It's not until in 2012. After I went to Community College of Philadelphia for a year from, in 2011, because I settled in U.S. in October 2010, 2011 is when I got finished, uh, you know, my initial cycle to get my GED. 2012, I went to register as a student at Community College of Philadelphia, and I began to take Psychology 101. And then I came across uh, what psychology is like a different mental stage and how the brain can struggle. What is schizophrenia? What is bulimia? What is anorexia? And as as I read through the schizophrenia and the symptoms and the manifestations, I was like, hold on one second. I know about this disease. It's called being possessed by the devil. you telling me that the person who has this was not possessed by the devil? The professor said, yep, it's not being possessed by the devil. I said, that can't be. And then I begin to see human being as a a mechanical machine versus divine or an intelligent being. And I would literally sit sometime and look at the professor and just be emotional, like i cry. Like, I don't get it. You know how many times my my, my mom got beat up because she was possessed by the devil? And she would say, I'm sorry for whatever happened to your mom, but your brain is like an engine. If it gets overheated, it could shut down or it could create problems somewhere else. I say, you mean like an oil change, like a getting rest, like a radiator is sending a cool a fluid to cool down the engine? She say, exactly. I say, you mean like a power outage in brand, like a power outage in regular life? She say, exactly. And then You can close your eyes for a long period of time, and then you will see lights popping inside. And she said, these are images that your eyes muscles recorded it. And then when you close your eyes, even though you don't see anything, the print of those images pops up. I was like, this is unbelievable. How can my people don't know that? And I realized that when you have religion, you don't know anything. Yeah. It's, it's, it is painful. So these are the type of situation that triggers my brain in the past. And with my access to education, especially psychology, I begin to say, no, something is not right. Something is not right. Something is not right. And then my brain begin to, you know, face it and challenge it. And then throw up everything I believed in in the past. Like, I even call my mom's best friend. I call my aunt. She was my mom's best friend when my mom was younger. She was nurse, so I call her. Her name is Awa. I call I say, you say, "Who's this?" I say, is "This Muhammad. I'm in the United States." Like, "Oh, really? How did you go there?" You know, after those civilities, blah blah blah. I said, "I have a question for you." I say, "Yeah." I See, "I remember when I was seven or eight, my mom had a. She was like a crazy." She said, "Yeah." I said, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more of what she was suffering from. You know, she paused a little bit and she said, why are you asking this question today? I said, I don't know. I think I'm still struggling with the image of it. And I want to know, uh, I know we treated her like she was possessed by the devil, but I just want to understand what it was. She says, well... Now that you're in the United States, I assume that your brain is open enough to to listen to what I have to say. Your mom was not possessed by the devil. She was traumatized. As a young kid, she was 13 years old when she got married. She got you when she was 14. Uh, I'm sorry to say, but your father was just abusive. All that trauma at 16, she was divorced. And then because woman has barely any value, they were forcing her to get married to somebody else, which they did. After 25, something like that, my mom was in her second marriage, right? She, she, so she got that mental breakdown. And, but because, you know, we don't, our society here, we don't know those things. So they consider her to be possessed by the devil. And uh, so she was being treated as such. And that's when I told her that yeah, I understand because now I'm thinking psychology. I just I'm thinking uh schizophrenia and stuff. She said, Wow, my son, I love you. Please continue. Education is the one thing that's gonna help you. So
0: yeah. That's beautiful. And it's it's nice to to know that in the family you have at least some people, you know, who, who can be a bright light that's to right. you. Um, or to any, to anyone. We're gonna take a quick pause, but we'll be right back for the last part of my interview with Mohammed Cisse, a leader in the Clergy Project, an organization that provides peer support to current and former religious leaders who no longer believe in a God or supernatural elements. This group's focus is to provide online forums for its participants, career transition assistance, coaching grants, and subsidized psychotherapy sessions in partnership with Recovering From Religion Foundation and the Secular Therapy Project. We'll be right back with more from Muhammad
3: I was reading this I mean it wasn't it wasn't it was just some some blog somewhere blog somewhere of this conservative Muslim who was defending uh, the death penalty for apostates and he was like, well here's the case and I think his his reasoning shows why it's really important to talk about why? Not only is the religion harmful, it that it's false, that it's literally not true, uh, because his argument was. Well, you have these you have these apostates, and they're talking about they're criticizing the faith, and they're creating doubt uh, among the believers, and then, and then people have to you know, and then people are leaving the faith. And what we're really risking here is our neighbors and our communities and our friends burning in hellfire forever. And that's what these uh, that's what these apostates want, and that's what and that that that's where it will go if they get their way. And if we love our neighbors, if we love our nation and our communities, we don't want them to burn forever in hellfire uh, and so uh, the the it's actually quite it's like it's a it's a good thing it's a it's a compassionate thing to kill the apostate now so that they don't so that eternity you know people aren't good people aren't burning forever and i think this is why it's really important to always talk about literally why is this not even true you know not 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 just that it's harmful but that it's not true because they can always within their within their understanding of the way that the world is they can always reformulate um, these uh, these variety of abuses as actually good in the long run. Um, and heaven and hell are a good way of doing that.
0: Hey, this is Monica Burns, director of Black Atheists and Agnostics of Louisville and co-host of Blasphemy in the Bluegrass. And you're listening to the Where We're Headed podcast. We're back. Here's Muhammad again from our interview. Just a couple more questions and, and, and I think um, I'll let you go. What is your hope for for the folks back home in terms of the work that you're doing now and in terms of you know just the relationships that you have with people in your family or where you came up? Do you do you have any hope, you know, that drives your work that, that you can see things changing? Do you feel like what you're doing now is helping in some way in the community back home, or do you feel like you're more of an ambassador? And working in a different space, like how, how connected do you feel to, to that community still and how much hope do you have for things getting better there? A continuation of what I was
2: previously saying is that from my skepticism and my discovery of science and education, that's when I got to meet TCP, the Clergy Project in 2017. So meeting clergy project in 2017 was like, you see when there is a power outage in your house and it has lasted for so long and suddenly someone gives you flashlight, all right? Meeting TCP was one of those things. I was already very skeptical doing um, researches in the Quran and also in the Bible. I was finding discrepancies by myself I hated the story of Abraham and uh, Sarah and Hagar, how that slave, poor slave girl was sexually and emotionally abused by uh, a man and his wife with a God that accepted that she's still slave and sexually abused. But when she gets pregnant, the angel come down and curse that unborn baby that he's going to live like a wild donkey, everybody against him and him against everybody. I was starting to feel disgust. But you see, these are things I used to read to play with. So it's like a, your mind is like a, an engine. It goes one way until you get a breakdown one day and you start going, you do reverse in order to go forward and you realize that, oh, you can go reverse too. And I started like, no, this is bullshit. <laughs> so through my relationship with TCP, I then begin to realize that it's, some Christian leaders have the same challenges. So then I realized that I was not alone, that yes, the same way my mind is fighting injustice, some other people too in the Christian community are feeling the same way. So TCP was the first organization to give me a brighter light to life. From that perspective, I begin to identify myself as not a skeptical anymore, but like a literally an atheist, there is no God at all, right? But in the beginning, I was still religious. And as I get education, I'm skeptical. And now that I'm facing the reality and I'm seeing more experience, I'm having more experience, I realize that no, it's not one or the other, it's plainly no, right? And then I started getting a little bit concerned about family back home. Because when you don't do religion, that's where you see the danger of religion. And that's from Christianity to Islam, they're both same thing. They preach peace, but they're never peaceful. Because you are either with them or you are against them. There is no middle ground. And that too began to just make me want to throw up. Islam is an Arabic word which simply means peace. What is that peaceful nature of anything that retaliates so bad? Then it's not peace. It's a fake peace, it's not peace. And, um, but I realized that no, even though I'm rebelling against a belief, I still do belong to a community that might need me. Granted, I'm an American community today where i have everything available i can apply for a job anywhere and get some job i can work with people who don't even know me right but i still belong to this community so i started to be a little diplomatic about it when i talked to my folks or my cousins and brothers and sisters back home i talked to them you know calmly about it and i had moved to alaska by 2017, coming to Alaska was another big life because I realized that the sun doesn't set in Alaska. Whereas in the Quran, it says, pray in the sunrise, mid-sun, and sunset. So I use that as a tool. I say, guys, listen, I'm not crazy, okay? I'm talking to you on the phone, but there is an eight hours difference between you and me. Religions never tell us about the differential time." Science is the one who helped us do that. Where I am in Alaska, I have a six month without nighttime, six months without daytime. Do you think that the Quran or the messenger of the Quran knew that there will be a place on the earth where there is no sunset? So you can see that what we were told when we were kids that the Quran is universal, it's not true. It's not universal because Alaska is part of this universe, but Alaska, the sun doesn't set. And I realized to see that they were acting the same way I was acting. So we realized that we, we receive information, but the fear of going against God make us tune out completely. And then I get into my final assessment of how to help them. I realized that we all live with God on the basis of fear, not on the basis of hope. The promise in the Quran or in the Bible is either the heaven or eternal pain, like a hell. None of them give you anything other than that. However, human behavior is more guided by fear than by hope, which means that we are all afraid of going to hell. And I told them, I say, I cannot be afraid of hell. It's like a mental hostage. It's like a someone got into the bank and have a gun on your head and tell you to give him your money. But you see, it's like a, a mental robbery. It has lasted so long that even though the robbery is no longer here, we're still afraid of getting out of the bank or out not giving the money. So I, 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 I started to help them, very few of them. Right now I have a three cousins who literally loves me when I talk to them. They like, say, you know, it's not because you're in America, okay? But when you you talk, it simply makes sense. And I wish you were here to help more. But if when I was there, I was being combated, you know? Because I started there without knowing that I was atheist. I was just like a rejecting many of the system. And then they were looking at me like an enemy, but I didn't even know that I was atheist at the time, you know? So um, I have a hope, I have a hope that humanism and the humanism actions will take place. I'm just sad and sorry that religion has left such a heavily heavy impact in our society that it will take a literally very long time for this system to reverse. And because people are constantly living under fear religious leaders have always feared to reverse to, to keep people aligned. If you look at U.S. right now, you could see right-wing growth is guided more by religious preaching. Like, Oh, liberals are pedophiles. They go into hell. Oh, marriage is between men and women. And as soon as they reverse back to those practices, you see, people begin to live on the fear and align again themselves with this. That's why I do what I do with uh, the Clergy Project, because I know how, no matter how small the impact of our actions are, they are at least one baby step every day that we are taking to liberate somebody's brain or somebody's life or something like that. And if you look at every, anyone who gets out of religion, the person genuinely become a much better person. Don't judge people. Don't play mean with people. Don't hate people anymore. You just look at everybody with love. Like you love everybody, yeah. So, Bob, for, for the folks back home, I have hope. But for the religion, I don't have that much hope. I don't know if that makes me <laughs> a positive man, but it's just my uh, the reality I'm facing. Because it's, uh, it is really deadly. It really is deadly. I'll give you an example. For instance, I call a cousin of mine to offer her a job, but she couldn't take a job because she couldn't get out of that dress type Like, like, to be religious with you, God doesn't look at you from your dress perspective. Why do you still stuck in that dress? But that to tell you that that's how heavy religious can have an impact on someone. So I I am hopeful that we humanists in the humanist society will continue to take action with love, compassion, uh, respect and consideration. And hopefully one at a time, we're gonna open people's eyes and then they can begin to see that life is better without God.
0: Questions that I do have, um, I just wanna know for my own background, Ivory Coast as a country, quick colonial sort of history. I mean, French, was it English? Was it everybody? I
2: mean, Uh, It was French, but but here's the three things I usually tell people to know about Ivory Coast. From American perspective, almost 80% of all chocolate, you come from the Ivory Coast and the cocoa bean industry, right? Ivory Coast is the most beautiful country in the West of Africa, next to Ghana and Liberia and Mali, Burkina Faso. And it is a former French colony, so the native language there is French. I mean, the, the national language is French, not the native language. The native language is something like a sixty. You have a Mandingo, Baule, uh, Baule, and it, different residual languages called the Akan, and uh, you have, uh, you know, those who speak the same language as Liberian, Guinea and stuff like that. But All right, yeah. beautiful country. French colony chocolate industry country. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Mohammed, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's that's amazing. Uh, I appreciate you you spending time with me and just telling me a little bit more about yourself. Black atheists, secular humanists, skeptics, and non-believers. The reality is, despite what people might think. This demographic is now the largest religious minority in the United States. And so we're really coming at this from a place of inquiry, but also love and regard for our people. So you might be listening as a person of the Christian tradition, the Yoruba, Jewish, Hindu, Wiccan, Muslim tradition. We're really doing this podcast for everybody and for you too, to tell your stories. Because at the end of the day, as black people, we've really been through a lot, especially these past 500 odd years or so. So we've just got to love on each other, right? Be real with each other and come together to empower one another and to move forward. I cannot thank you enough for listening to our latest episode, especially after such a long hiatus. But I do promise that we still have plenty more coming, especially from this abroad series. So make sure that you catch up with what we've been doing in season two and also go back all the way to the beginning and check out season one for every episode, every nuance, every perspective that we've covered in the stories of religious descent in the African diaspora. We are not finished. We've got plenty more from this abroad series and stick around because next episode, we're going to be talking with one of my own colleagues and good friends who's going to share her perspective on navigating religion, society, and culture in Ghana. Stay tuned with us for our next installment on Where We're Headed.